weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a savior. Emmanuel Church opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus, friend of sinners. Now here's this week's message. Today's sermon reading comes from Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, the wages are not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. This is the word of the Lord. Well, uh, good afternoon. It's good to see you all and good to be with you again. Uh, it's a blessing uh, for our church. Uh, as Jason said, we do partner with you guys, or we feel like you guys are a sister church to us. It's a great blessing. Um, not just uh, because we have been able to help you guys a little bit, but also because my daughter is going to Cal State Fullerton. So, hey. Yeah, I mean, goodness sakes. Fullerton suddenly has like a much more special place in my heart. I was driving today and I was like, oh, yeah. She'll be doing this a lot. So that was good. Uh, it's encouraging. Uh, so you can pray for her, actually. Her name's Katie. Um, also, highly impressed with Jason's musical ability. I don't know. I, <laughs> they let me lead worship at our church. And they, they were like, okay, we'll give you a 90-day trial. And on the 90th day, the guy who was the pastor of Planet Church was like, you're done. <laughs> it was horrible. So anyway, uh, it's good to be with you all, even during uh, some inclement weather. It's always nice to have uh, some rain, but obviously uh, it's a little crazy. So um, uh, this morning's uh, sermon is from Romans chapter 4. The text was read for us this morning. Um, so you can turn there if you're not already there. But I want to talk to you this morning, or this afternoon. Sorry, I'm going to say this morning a bunch because I'm used to that in our church. Uh, I want to talk to you today about the path to true joy. How do you find real joy, real true happiness? Um, if you can remember the loose outline of Romans, if you think back to Romans, what's happening in Romans chapters 1 through 3? Romans 1 through 3 are really about sin. They're all about sin and how all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. That's Paul's argument. He starts with really bad news, if you remember. Uh, Romans 3, 1 through 3 is really all about how we deserve punishment from God. And uh, he really pushes on that idea in Romans chapter 3. He says there's none who understand. There are none who are righteous. He's very, very firm in his con condemnation of the human race. But then in verse 24, look at Romans chapter 3, verse 24 with me. Paul says this. He says, we have been justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. He, he talks about justification, the declaration of righteousness. And, and what Paul says is we now have received this declaration of righteousness as a free gift. And the question that Paul has to answer for us in chapter 4 is how? How do we get this declaration of righteousness? What does God do in crediting righteousness to us? He has to answer that question because for a Jew it doesn't make sense. If you call the righteous 
wicked, it's an evil. And if you call the wicked righteous, that's an evil as well. And so Paul has to explain how this happens. And the word that gets used in theological circles for this in chapter 4 is the word imputation. Uh, I'm sure you've heard the word imputation. It's the big, like, $5 theological word, right? And it's translated, it's, it's, it's used to describe what is translated here as reckons. Look in chapter 4 with me in verse 5. Look at chapter 4, verse 5. Paul says, To the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness, or reckoned, credited. Uh, there's a balance line drawn on your account. It's given to you as righteous. So they use, theologians use this word to explain how God actually and really credits righteousness to his people. What he's actually doing in giving righteousness to his children. He sees us as though we are really righteous because we are actually really righteous. Not in ourselves, but in the righteousness that we receive from Jesus. We are seen as righteous by God. Now it doesn't mean we're righteous in practical life, right? I remember when I first got saved, I thought, I'll never sin again. <laughs> Like three hours later, I was like, okay, there was that one, but I won't ever sin again. And then it just kept going, right? And you realize you're actually much worse than you thought you were. And the longer you walk with Christ, the more aware you are of the brokenness that's in you. But God has started that process, and we have been credited with a righteousness that's not our own. But there's another question that we have to answer, and the question that Paul has to answer is this. What does God do with our sins? I think we know the answer simply, but the point of verses 6 through 8 is to give us this in very clear, specific statements. What Paul argues for is that God forgives our sin, and he does so by counting our sin against Christ, against Jesus. And that's the other side of imputation. Not only has God taken Christ's righteousness and placed it on us, but our sins have been taken off of us and placed on Jesus. And that is the statement that Paul is going to make here. But what's interesting is that he doesn't do this from a theological perspective. He does this from an emotional perspective. What Paul wants us to do is have joy because our sins are actually on Jesus. That's his point in this text. And so, uh, there's, if, if you're taking notes, the first point this morning is the other side. Now, as I said, we're dealing with this other side of imputation. I think we know the imputation of Christ's righteousness on us. Now we're dealing with the other side of imputation. And that's, uh, if, again, if you're taking notes, point A, credits and debits. Credits and debits. Now, if you look at verse 6, notice what he says. Romans chapter 4, verse 6. Look what he says here. He says, Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Now, Paul is using David's testimony in Psalm 32 as a secondary proof to what he's already said about Abraham. Uh, if you look up in uh, verses 1 through 3, what does he say about Abraham here? He says, what then shall we say that our Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So the imputation of righteousness onto us, that's that first side of imputation. That's the argument there. And then he takes David as the other side of imputation. Now, why pick David out of the Old Testament? What, what was David's like, claim to fame? He was a good king. He's a pretty good guy. He gets the Davidic covenant. But when you think about David, what do you think of? You think of Bathsheba, right? You think of his sin against Uriah the Hittite. You think of the dead child. He had committed adultery and murder, and he had lied to the nation as the king. And all of those things were punishable by death. And that's why David gets used here. 
Abraham is used as a righteous example, and David is used as an unrighteous, a sinful example. And he uses, Paul uses David's own personal testimony about this. And Paul introduces David's personal testimony in Psalm 32 by saying what he does in verse 6. Now look at verse 6 again. He says, just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Now, God credits righteousness, and he says, you can be happy, but look at what the verses are that, that Paul quotes here. Look at verse 7. He says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. And what's interesting is that he never uses the word righteousness in any of the quotes that he uses, right? In verse 6, he says, be happy because God has credited righteousness to you. And then he quotes two verses out of Psalm 32, and neither of those verses has to have the word righteousness in them. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. He uses three different words for sin. So what is the connection in Paul's mind? What's the connection that he's making? And the connection that Paul is making is found in verse 8. Look at verse 8 with me and notice what he says. He says, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Now that word there is the same word that's used for the word credited in, up in chapter, in, in chapter 4, verse 5. His faith is credited as righteousness. And it's the same word that's used in Romans chapter 4, verse 3, that Abraham had righteousness credited to him. It's the Greek word logizomai, okay? Now, you don't need to know that. But it's the same word that's used three different times in this chapter. So when Paul makes this connection, Paul is making the connection in his own mind between the crediting of Abraham in righteousness and the crediting of David. That's the connection that he's making. The Hebrew word here is hashav, and it means to count or to esteem something, to look at something and to esteem it. And to make this connection is okay, right, to a Jewish mind. What Paul is doing is connecting Genesis 15, 6 about Abraham and Psalm 32, and he's sticking them together, and he's saying these two have the same idea. The same idea is being communicated here. And the way he does that is with the repetition of that Hebrew word. That Hebrew word is a very important Hebrew word, and it's repeated both times in the same context. So what's going on here? Well, for Paul, the imputation of righteousness to Abraham and David also included the imputation of their sin. We know Abraham wasn't a righteous man, right? He made lots of mistakes. You remember some of the mistakes Abraham made, right? The, the most glaring one is that he said Sarah was his sister and not his wife. Uh, all of you wives would love that, I'm sure, right? If your husband said, oh, she's my sister, right? So he sells his own wife out. He's a sinner, right? He does evil things. So it's not just that Abraham is completely righteous and David is completely evil. But Paul makes this connection between the crediting, the giving of righteousness, and the giving of sin back to Christ. Now, it's a great picture of the principle of imputation. Why is it a good picture of this? Well, because what did David do to get his righteousness? He did nothing. In fact, just the opposite. David was nothing but a sinner. And there was nothing he could do to ever repay his sin. He knew that, right? Because he had committed unbelievably horrible sins. If, if the stuff that David did happened with politicians now, it would make front page news. So this guy is a really bad guy, and he knows that. And he's dealing with his sin, and what God is doing here through Paul is showing us 
that there is blessedness in the helplessness that David finds himself in. There's joy in the helplessness. So what is this blessedness? And this is point B, blessedness. The word that Paul uses here for blessed is the Greek word that means happy. It just means happy. In fact, it's, it's actually the highest statement of personal satisfaction possible in Greek. You can't get any higher than this. This is the happiest you can possibly be in the Greek language. Paul says three times in these verses that those who have received forgiveness of their sins and the crediting of righteousness are happy people. They're happy people. They're the highest happiness they could possibly be. Now, what's the, what's the nature of David's happiness here? There's two questions that we have to answer. First is this. What made David so happy? That's the first question. And second, how did he get there? How did David get to this place of happiness? Now, the, the answer is obvious. The first question is obvious in verse 6. Because if you just look at verse 6, notice what it says. He says, just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. So what, what's, what's Paul saying? He's saying David got it. He understood the imputation of righteousness on him. He understood that he received righteousness from God and that that righteousness was an alien righteousness. And so David is happy, according to Paul, because God sees him as righteous, completely separate from the unrighteousness that he actually committed. When God looked at David, David understood his unrighteousness, but he also understood and believed that God had credited righteousness to him. And so that made him happy. But the question is, how does David get there? How does he get to that place of joy? And to answer that question, what I want to do is go back to the original source of these quotes in Psalm 32. So go back there uh, to Psalm 32 with me. It was fortunate that this was the text that was used for the uh, call to worship text. Psalm 32 is the text that I want to spend a few minutes in and just walk through. This is point two, uh, the path to joy. As you turn there, there's a principle that's generally true in the spiritual world. Spiritual things are always turned upside down. They're always turned on their heads. Uh, What appears to be good in the world is actually bad. And what appears to be bad is actually good. For example, the way to glory is through humility, right? Philippians chapter 2, Christ humbled himself. And then it says, verse 9, for this reason also God has highly exalted him. Because of his humility, God gave him glory. Or the way to leadership is through submission. The more submissive a person is, the more clear it is that they're ready to be a leader. That's the way that God has wired the world. And one of the clearest statements of that is found here in Psalm 32. The question is, how do we find joy? And the answer that David gives us is actually repentance. The way to joy is through repentance and faith. If you remember, we're not going to turn there, but you remember Psalm 51, right? What does David pray in Psalm 51? He says, restore to me the what? The joy of my salvation. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. And David had sinned wickedly, and he had sat in his sin for an extended period of time. And he says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. So how can he get there? And the answer is repentance. It's repentance. Maybe... This afternoon, you're here and your heart is laboring under a load of guilt. Maybe there's guilt over some failure, some care, or some sadness in your life, some sin that you've committed. Maybe this afternoon, you're sitting here and you're just filled with self-pity, right? You you understand this stuff about the righteousness of Christ and imputation, but your, your heart is just burdened because you feel like life is hard and things just aren't fair for you. You're angry, possibly, at God. 
And maybe you're here and you've never actually repented for your sins. Maybe you're not actually a believer. You don't know Christ. Maybe you think you have, but you just have no joy. Well, regardless of where you're at in any of those categories, or maybe none of those, I want David to lay out a map for us that offers us true joy. That's what David is doing here. So the first point here is through sadness and discipline. Look at Psalm 32, starting in verse 1. He says, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. That's his statement. Again, the happiness. Transgression forgiven, sin covered. Verse 2, How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So again, these are the verses that Paul quotes. And the joy that he is talking about here, that David is talking about, is the joy of forgiveness. Now, there's, a, there's a little phrase that you have to look at here that's so important. At the end of verse 2, it says, In whose spirit there is no deceit. What is that? What's the word for duplicity, for being deceitful, for lying? David is saying that joy is only available to people who have acknowledged that, that they've sinned, that, they, that aren't hiding their sin. Now, that's the danger, right? John says the same in 1 John 1.10. He, he says, If we say we have no sin, we make God a liar. And the truth isn't in us, right? We're not living in the goodness of the truth. So David says, look, joy comes to the one who's honest about their sin. But look at verse 3 and 4. Notice what he says here. He says, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. Literally roaring. It's the same word that's used for a roaring lion. He's crying out in pain. He's miserable. And he says, when I, when I was duplicitous about my sin, when I was deceitful about my sin, inside, I was like a roaring lion, just in pain, hurting. And he says, my body wasted away. He, he's literally suffering physically. His bones are brittle. And he's so burdened with the reality of his guilt and his sin before God. In verse 4, he says, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. That, that word for vitality is literally like your life juice. Like the juice inside of you. All the fluids inside of you. The, the language there is in the fever heat of summer. He's saying it's like a man walking in the desert. He hasn't had water for, for days. And he's parched, thirsty. And David says, that's how I felt. I wasn't honest about my sin. I was deceitful. I didn't, for whatever reason, I didn't want people to know. I didn't want to get into trouble. I didn't want to have, I didn't want to lose the throne. All the things that David had, all the reasons for hiding that David had led him to this place of absolute misery. He is miserable. He's roaring like a lion in pain. His, his body is broken. He's like dried up because he hasn't been honest about his actual sin in his life. And David says that as long as he was silent, God's hand, notice what it says, verse 4, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. It says God's hand pushed down on David. God literally put his hand on David and pressed on him. And he said, you will not get up. David says that when God, when he was silent about his sin, God disciplined him. Now you wouldn't have known it looking at his life. He marries Bathsheba. He seems to have gotten away with it. If you read 2 Samuel 12, it appears that he's gotten away with it. No one would ever have known. Uriah was dead. The only one who really knew was Joab. And Joab didn't know all the intricacies of what had happened in the palace. And so Joab, he, David literally is the only guy who knows all the details of what's happened. He's the only guy. 
And so he, he has gotten away with his sin. And, and from the outside, everything is good. He, he's married Bathsheba. Life is good. They're still winning wars. But David says during that entire time, he was sitting in the palace, miserable. And God had his thumb on David, holding him down. And we would never know this, right? But this is what David is telling us. This is what was happening. And what, what you see here is God's kindness, don't you? This is amazing, actually. God is loving, and he wants his children to come to their senses on their own. He wants us to come to our senses on our own and to repent, doesn't he? But he loves us so much that if we don't repent, he will discipline us until we do. He won't let go of us. And we have no idea what this discipline felt like in David's life. Uh, We don't know the specifics. We know something. He describes it to us. But imagine nine months or ten months of this kind of misery in his heart. We do know the baby died. Whatever it was, whatever the suffering was, or however complex it was in David's heart, the hardest part of David's discipline that God was giving him was this spiritual component. He was miserable. That's what it feels like to be distant from God, doesn't it? If you've been a Christian any length of time, you know this feeling. When when you're not walking in the Spirit, when you're hiding your sin, when you're being deceitful, you feel dry. You feel that. You feel distant from God. And maybe, maybe you're here this afternoon, and the joy is gone in your Christian life. You wonder why. I want to encourage you to consider whether this is something maybe that God is calling you to do, to be honest. I think if David were here, he would actually tell you to consider this. To consider, is there an area in your life that you need to repent for? That you're silent about, that you haven't been honest with God or with others about? So what does David do? This is point B here, to repentance. Now David finds himself in the palace, he seems to have gotten away with it, but he's miserable. If you look at verse 5 of chapter 32, notice what he says. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Now, Now, what's interesting here is that there are two negative things that he does and one positive thing. Two things that he doesn't do and one that he does do. The first negative thing that he does, or the one negative thing that he does, is he stops hiding his sin. Look at verse 5b there. He says, my iniquity I did not hide. Now, of course, nothing's hidden from God, because if you know the story, what happens? David's still hiding. Nathan comes and tells him the story about the lambs, and Nathan says, you're the man, right? So it's not as though David was like, well, I should probably repent. David doesn't do that. But here he says, I didn't hide my iniquity anymore. Now, what is he talking about here? He's not talking about hiding it from God. He's talking about justifying his sin. He's talking about saying, it's okay for me. I'm an ancient Near Eastern king. I can do what I like. They're my soldiers. He was honest with God about his sin. He stopped stopped repressing in his heart the burden of his conscience, what his conscience had been telling him that entire time. And the two positive things that he does are spelled out here as well. They're basically two sides of the same coin. The first word, if you look at verse 5a, it says, I acknowledge my sin to you. I, I acknowledged it to you. 
In Hebrew, it's, it's the verb form, it's the verb of the, uh, it's a form of the verb to know. Basically, it means I made my sin known to you. Now, that's ironic. God knew all the sin. He's the one who sent Nathan to do that. So what does David mean when he says, I, I acknowledge my sin to God? What's he talking about? What he's doing is he's essentially telling God that what Nathan said to him was true. It's true. God, I acknowledge to you that what you have said to me through the prophet is true. And the second verb here is actually uh, just almost the exact same. It has a very simple meaning, and it's the word confess. Look at verse 5 again. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you. I didn't hide my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. He confesses it. What it means is to state something publicly, actually. He publicly states that he has sinned. It's actually the same word that's used in Hebrew for the verb to praise, to give public affirmation of something to God, is to confess. Now think about this for a minute. If you had committed the sins that David committed, who would you want to know that? Nobody, right? And what's so fascinating is no one knew. David had actually pulled off the perfect crime. No one knew all the details. Everyone had pieces, but no one knew what actually happened. David had actually gotten away with his sin until Nathan walks into the throne room, right? Because one person knew. God knew. And God puts his finger on David and says, no, until you repent. But when David acknowledges his sin, he doesn't go halfway, right? He doesn't just confess his sin to, like, like you know, a close friend or, you know, like in a quiet, dark room, right? He doesn't care who knows about his sin. His life is so burdened by the weight of his sin that he just spills it out. He confesses and he acknowledges his sin to God. And listen, to anyone else who wants to know, right? I mean, can you imagine having a sin like David's sin written down in a book for every generation to see forever? That's crazy. And not only does he allow it to be written into the court records in 2 Samuel, but he actually writes songs about his evil and then has the entire nation sing them. That's insane. Like, we would never do that. I would never do this. But what David understands is the depth of his sin. He's 100% fine with everybody knowing because he knows how bad he really is. He's so pained by the reality of his sin that hiding becomes totally pointless. He's just totally open and honest, and he confesses his sin, and he acknowledges all of it. And maybe you're right at this point this afternoon. (laughs) Maybe you know the depth of sins that you committed, and maybe you understand this feeling of guilt that David understood. Listen, this psalm is written for you and for me. There's a path to joy. There is a path to joy. And the reason for joy is at the end of verse 5. And this is point C, if you're following along. Faith in forgiveness. Now notice what David says. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you, my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. The last sentence of verse 5. You forgave the guilt of my sin. That is an absolutely unequivocal statement, right? There's no like shakiness in there at all. He says, you forgave me. Now, That's a bold statement. He murdered someone. And he committed adultery. And he caused the death of a child. And he lied to an entire nation as a public figure. 
And he says, it's forgiven. It's erased. It's done. Now imagine being Uriah's family or Bathsheba's father. In fact, we know later in 2 Samuel, Bathsheba's father turns against David. And David says, look, it's forgiven. I say, whoa, it's not forgiven for me. You can't just wipe that clear, right? Now, how can, God, how can David possibly know that God forgave his sin? How can he possibly know that? Well, in, in 2 Samuel 12, 13, if you remember, what does Nathan say? Nathan says, he tells him, you will not die, right? He tells him he won't die. But that isn't the issue. That isn't actually the issue. How can David possibly know that God forgives his sin? And the answer is actually very simple. The way he knows is by faith. He actually believes what the prophet is telling him. The prophet comes to him and says, your sins have been cleansed, you will not die. And David believes Nathan. He believes the promise that God has forgiven him. And you might say, well, no prophet's come to me and told me that. <laughs> no one's come to me and said, oh, you're forgiven, John. I mean, if someone came to me and he said, hey, he was a prophet like Nathan, you know, he probably had like a very full beard, looked very serious, right? I would believe that, but no prophets come to me. But of course, that's not true, right? God himself has told you that he forgives your sin, hasn't he? Can you think of a verse that tells you that God has forgiven your sin? For Sean 1, 9, what does he say? If we confess our sins, he is what? faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the promise of God. And we can believe it. So what David does is he takes this promise that God gives him through Nathan the prophet and he believes it's true. I am actually forgiven, he says. And the second thing to notice in verse 5d there, the last line of verse 5d, is that David says that God forgave the guilt of his sin. Now, why doesn't he say, he forgave my sin? Just finish there, right? He forgave my sin, done, we're good. He says, God forgave the guilt of my sin. There's two possible ways to understand this. One is that David is just using repetition to show just how serious his sin was. Sort of like saying he's the king of kings, like we use repetition to show highness, right? He's just really talking about how sinful he really was. The other, which I think is actually the right answer, is to take it to mean the guilt or the, the complexity of David's sin. God's forgiveness of David is complete, right? It isn't just the sin of adultery and murder that are forgiven. Those are huge. But it isn't just those things. All the sin that was associated with David's evil is completely forgiven. The guilt that David felt, actually, is forgiven. The distance that had grown between him and God is totally forgiven. It's erased. The doubts that were in David's heart that caused him to doubt that God actually loved him and that kept him from actually walking in the spirit, all of that forgiven. The punishment that David rightfully deserved physically, totally forgiven. All of it is completely forgiven. Erased in the heart and mind of God. And the relationship between David and God is reestablished. David is completely restored to God. He is completely forgiven. And that, obviously, is what gives him joy. He says, how blessed is the man. Look back up in verse 1. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Real happiness is not just that I am forgiven, but that I am restored to God. 
There's no more distance between me and God. He doesn't have his back turned to me with his arms crossed, waiting for me to grovel. I'm restored to him completely because all of my sin is completely erased. I'm completely forgiven. The joy of David's salvation was given to him. Again, fresh, new, as though the sin had never happened. And we know, right, how did that sin get forgiven? It's just not arbitrary. It was put on David's son a thousand years later. Jesus paid for David's adultery. Jesus paid for David's murder. Jesus paid for David's doubts and for his guilt. And that's why Paul quotes this verse here in Romans 4, 7 and 8. And the same is true for you if you're a Christian. But rather than looking forward to the cross like David did, the one who would come, we look backwards. Christ's death in our place makes complete forgiveness and reconciliation possible. Listen, if, if you know this, you know it. This is the single most joyful feeling you could ever have, isn't it? Every one of your sins completely forgiven. They're gone. All of your feelings, all of your doubts, all of your struggles, all of your wrestlings, all that you've done, all of your sin, the things that, that you wouldn't want anyone to know about, all of the sins are completely forgiven in Christ. When you know that, when you believe that, what comes up in your heart? Joy, right? You can't help but be happy because you know the weight of that sin, and it's off of you in Christ. So if you just think about the path that David's on, it goes down, 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 right? It keeps going down, 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 down. And as long as he's unwilling to repent and confess his sin, it keeps going down. But the moment we and David repent and confess our sins, in faith, what happens? There's an instant cliff up. Is there <laughs> instantly a restoration? And that tells us about God's heart for us. This is point D, just an encouragement. Just look at the last three verses of this psalm. It's so interesting. Starting in verse 8, just follow along with me and listen to what he says. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way in which you should go. Now, who is talking here? It isn't David anymore. God is speaking through David. And he says, God is telling us here, I will instruct you and teach you in the way in which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding. <laughs> What's he, what do you just call David? A donkey. <laughs> he says, don't be like a donkey, right? He says, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. Don't be like a donkey and keep running away from God, right? This is David's, this is God's encouragement through David. Don't wait. Turn. Turn in repentance and come back to God. Why? Notice what he says, verse 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. When we keep sinning, sorrow is just all around us, right? When we hide our sin, when we're duplicitous, when we're not honest about who we really are, we're faced with sorrow. But he says, he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. He says, the one who trusts in God's faithful forgiveness will be surrounded by God's faithful love. That's experiential. They'll know the loving kindness of God because they will have been trusting in him and in his love. What does that mean? It means that the person who has trusted in the forgiveness of God knows just how deeply God truly loves them. 
And what does that produce in us? In verse 11, he says this. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. And shout for joy, all you who are an upright in heart. What does he say? He says, those who know the righteousness that they receive from God and that their sins are completely removed. He says they shout with joy. This is what God's forgiveness does in our hearts. No wonder this is what Paul says, right? This is why Paul quotes this in Romans 4, 6 through 8. It's the other side of imputation, the complete forgiveness of all of our sins, placed on Christ once and for all. So if you're here this afternoon, this is my appeal to you. Repent. Make a practice of repentance. It's a joy even to listen to a prayer of confession, isn't it? This is true of me, but I'm forgiven. Repent often and quickly. Maybe you have a sin that you haven't told anybody. Maybe you're being deceitful with your heart and you're not genuine and honest. I would just appeal to you. Tell somebody. In fact, tell your pastor. (laughs) He wants to care for your soul. Come and talk to him and share your heart with him. He needs to know to help you and point you back to Christ. And then ask the Lord to show you sins that might be weighing on you. And when he shows them to you, just repent of them and trust. You're totally forgiven, right? Repent and trust the forgiveness that God has offered you. We had a lady in our church who was an immigrant from another country, and she came to church when I preached this sermon. And she, this was her first time in church, and she had had an affair for two years in her home country and hadn't told anybody. And the Lord used these verses to talk to her, and she repented. And now they have an amazing marriage, and they're leaders in our church. <laughs> but God used this truth of being forgiven to open her heart and to show her that. And the same can be true for you. If there's something that you're hiding, open your heart, be honest with the sin, confess it, and trust. Trust what Christ has done for sinners like us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your mercy to us in Christ. Lord, what an amazing thing. Lord, what we rightfully deserve, we know what we rightfully deserve is death. Lord, we've sinned against you. Lord, our sins may seem smaller than David's, but they're not. Lord, we have lusted. We've hated. We've sinned in anger. Lord, we've been unrighteous in so many different ways. And what we rightfully deserve is death. And yet, Lord, you have taken the sin off of us completely. Lord, you've forgiven the guilt of our sin. You've taken it all off of us, and you've placed it on your Son, You have imputed our sin to him, and then you crushed him for our iniquities. And so, Lord, we rejoice in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would help us to trust him, Lord, to believe the promise that we're forgiven in what he has done for us at the cross. Lord, as we believe it, Lord, fill our hearts with joy, trusting that all of our sins are forgiven. There is no more distance between us and you, Lord, that we can come boldly into your presence and find mercy grace to help us. Lord, we love you. We thank you for Christ. In his most precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you were encouraged and blessed by the word. We'd like to invite you to join us for Sunday worship. If you would like to know our service time and further information, please visit us online at www.emmanueloc.com. 
www.thegracewithmary.com. And so, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.